0: Season 3, Episode 11, The Big Ripoff. Welcome to Capital Insurrection Report, a podcast dedicated to news and analysis regarding the attack on the United States Capitol on January 6, 2021. I'm Scott Kuhn. Last time, I went over the executive summary included in the final report of the January sixth Committee. Also, several major publishers, and probably many minor ones, have put out different editions of the January 6th report, which are available wherever books are sold. Uh, Most of them appear to cost about $20. Um, My edition comes with a foreword by Representative Adam Schiff. Uh, There are other editions with Ari Melber, some other journalists. Um, Basically, what you're getting is different contents in the foreword, but most of them, of course, are going to be the same uh, copy, from the Government Printing Office, who I'm sure will put out their own edition. I have been staring at probably more electronic pages uh, in the last two years than I ever have in terms of uh, looking at different uh, documents from court cases and transcripts. So I'm very pleased to actually have something in a physical copy that's 800 pages long that I don't actually have to uh, print out on my printer. now. With regard to the report itself, of course, um, I urge everyone to buy a copy. Uh, if, you, if you're interested enough t- about the uh, January 6th insurrection to listen to this podcast, you're probably going to want to have a physical copy of the final report. A lot of it is not terribly new, but I do think they, in the final analysis, they've done a really good job putting it all together. Now, uh, in my edition, the first 100, ne- nearly 200 pages consist of the executive summary which, of course, was the theme of the last episode. Uh, And many of the chapters are essentially breakdowns of what we saw in the hearings. So a lot of the new stuff is actually in the transcripts, uh, the 18,000 pages of transcripts that were released and put up on uh, the committee's homepage very briefly until the end of the 117th Congress and the beginning of the 118th Congress, at which point they were taken down. But these are, of course, archived elsewhere. So read the report, read the transcripts. It's what I'm going to be doing. It's what I have been doing. Um, But today I would like to focus on a rather short section of the final report, which is Appendix 3, the big ripoff. Appendix 3 is a fairly short section of the report, but it's one that I believe is rather significant. Uh, It seems relevant, and the reason why I'm doing it today is because of recent reporting into the investigation that's being conducted by the Office of Special Counsel Jack Smith. A couple of different stories have developed. As always, I'll link to those in the show notes. One story is that Smith seems to be focused on getting adequate resources for the investigation and uh, looking particularly... At people who have experience prosecuting high level government corruption. So last week he hired two experienced federal prosecutors, Ray Holzer and David Harbach. Both, both of them have um, uh, prosecuted important cases against government officials. For example, Holzer was the lead prosecutor in a case involving obstruction of justice by a Paul Salafa. Who was an official charged with running the school lunch program in America, Sam, American Samoa? Holser won a conviction in that case in 2012 before D.C. jury, who found Salafa guilty of witness tampering and obstruction of justice. Harbach won an even more high-profile case in 2014, winning convictions against former Virginia Governor Robert McDonnell and his first lady Maureen McDonnell. A wide variety of charges, including conspiracy to commit wire fraud, obtaining property under cover of official right, and obstruction of an official proceeding. Harbach won convictions on 20 of the 26 counts against Governor and Mrs. McDonnell. So, and some of those charges, by the way, are charges, I think, are, are relevant, uh, potentially, to the material that we're going to discuss from Appendix 3. So these new hires by Jack Smith bring the number of attorneys working in the office to 22, based on public reporting. Um, could be could be different, but he's got a lot of lawyers, and of course, he's got more staff than that. So, Harbach had previously also worked as a war crimes investigator in The Hague, which I think is interesting, of course, again, because um, Smith's last job, of course, was serving as a judge, a special judge, uh, dealing with war crimes in The Hague. So I don't know if their their time uh, in the Netherlands uh, working for the administration of international justice actually lines up. But it, it is uh, kind of interesting. I don't know if they know one another personally or merely professionally. Um, but again, someone who's no stranger to taking on high profile cases. But the other story... Um, that really, I think, sort of pushed me to to say, okay, this will be uh, the first thing that we do after the executive summary, um, is reporting from the Washington Post that Jack Smith appears to be focusing on the question of how various witnesses who have refused to cooperate with the committee are paying their legal bills. Now, it's known that Rudy Giuliani has been subpoenaed for involvement in the various fundraising schemes that are covered in Appendix 3. According to the reporting in The Post, at least two additional Trump campaign officials have received subpoenas covering a variety of areas that, again, are related to the material in the Big Ripoff, Appendix 3. Now, these subpoenas have been reviewed by journalists. They're not actually publicly available, we know some things about what's contained within them. Um, but it would seem pretty likely that if they're going after Trump campaign officials who are involved in the big ripoff, there it's also quite likely that they are talking to attorneys as well, as to say, attorneys from the RNC and attorneys from the Trump campaign itself. And if you look at what's reviewed in the big ripoff, again, appendix three of the final report, And uh, the material that is publicly available uh, from these subpoenas that have been reviewed, but not fully published by the Washington Post and other outlets. Uh, Again, there's a lot of overlap. Um, So, for example, Smith has asked for materials, including communications about Dominion voting systems. Again, part of the big lie. Uh, Payments. Made by the Save America PAC. Presumably, this would cover legal fees. Information regarding payments by for, sorry, for attorneys for witnesses. So again, you know why is that relevant? We'll get to that in a moment. Information regarding the Election Defense Fund that was never created and used as a basically. Uh, A pretext for raising money that went into Save America Pact, which has pretty much been used as a slush fund. Information uh, specifically related to, um, again, there are many elements of the big lie. But part of this was efforts to go around the country, as we'll see, um, and work to overturn elections. Uh, There have been subpoenas additional to these uh, of Officials in Wayne and Antrim counties in Michigan regarding the big lie. And again, the big lie, according to Appendix 3, winds up also becoming the big ripoff. And there are also subpoenas of officials in Clark County, Nevada regarding the big lie. So, all of this is to say that it looks like Jack Smith is investigating the crimes or potential crimes described in Appendix 3 of the final report. Now, it's been a while. It's been since June 13th, the second public hearing of the committee, that these issues were really first raised, right? And the work, work of the Green Team, the team that was looking into the finances, really hasn't figured all that much into the hearings. And here, this particular issue has been relegated to an appendix, So Smith has really only been on the job since November. And this is part of the testimony where, again, this is important because many of the people involved are exactly the same people who invoked their Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination in front of the committee. So this material, a lot of it, again, not available, right? Jack Smith doesn't have this evidentiary trail. So he focused, you know, in some of his earliest subpoenas on the fake electors scheme. And now he's moving on to this, which, again, is noteworthy because this is from an appendix and it's not covered specifically in the criminal referrals section. But it looks to me as if there are very specific vulnerabilities Uh, that Trump has in this regard. You'll remember the testimony regarding uh, Stefan Pasatino from Cassidy Hutchinson, where it appears that her attorney was really working for Trump rather than working for her. And in fact, one of the things that uh, they're looking at are retention letters, right? Because there was the issue where Pasatino didn't want Hutchinson to actually sign a retention letter. This suggests that she was never the real client. The real client was the Save America PAC. PAC. The real client was Donald Trump, and he was never working in her interests. So that's part of it. These lawyers who appear to have worked toward obstruction of justice, perhaps, um, is a particular vulnerability. Because if subpoenaed, you know, there's there's legal sanctions, uh, there's disbarment. They're going to have to talk. And so Trump's reliance on attorneys creates some very specific vulnerabilities to them. And again, there's a wire fraud issue, which we'll talk about in a minute. So this round of subpoenas has caused Trump to go on the offensive, which for him, of course, means just hurling insults at Jack Smith and his wife. The far right is very upset at the moment that Smith's wife, one Katie Shevigny, was a producer on the 2020 Michelle Obama documentary, Becoming, and that she is apparently given money to Biden in the 2020 election campaign. So, again, that's very upsetting, right? Of course, no one is asking that Jenny Thomas be held to the same standard. She can engage in all the political activities that she wants, and it's not a problem for the most senior justice on the U.S. Supreme Court. But somehow Jack Smith is tainted by his wife's political contributions and activities. I really personally hate playing Trump's voice on this podcast. Uh, I really do. A lot of people are saying that his voice is the most annoying thing ever. Nasally and whiny like you wouldn't believe. The vocal equivalent of scratching nails on chalkboard. And... You know, most people don't want to aim directly in their ears. I certainly don't. So, you know, I'll give you a trigger warning here because um, I'm about to play a clip of Trump on the Mark Levin show criticizing Jack Smith. This prosecutor should resign. He's got a conflict. My prosecutor. It's Jack Smith. Smith. I wonder what his name was before Smith. I don't know. Maybe it was Smith, but it seems like such a nice name, Jack Smith. Uh, He is a terrorist. He is a Trump hater. His best friends are Weissman and all of these characters. Yeah. Uh, Lisa Monaco at the Justice Department, one of the top officials. Deputy Attorney General. Uh, this, is, this is a disgraceful situation. He should resign. His wife hates Trump, probably mm-hmm. even beyond him. And his wife, and his wife has a sister who openly hates, it like a level that you can't even believe. So that's the former president of the United States accusing the special counsel who is currently investigating him of being a terrorist. Now, of course, you know, Trump invited the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. He decided a mob to attack the Capitol, but somehow just basically Jack Smith is described by Trump as a terrorist. And, of course, Trump is talking about himself in the third person again, which always seems to be an odd choice. Dr. Kuhn thinks that Trump sounds like an idiot whenever he starts talking about himself in the third person. He sounds sad and dumb. It's the saddest thing like nobody has ever seen before. And, of course, many commentators are suggesting that Trump is scared that he's running scared. Um, for me, the upshot of this is that it really uh, gives people who have been skeptical of Jack Smith perhaps a basis to have a little bit more faith in him than they would have had ex ante. It's the Streisand effect. Um, basically, you know, it's like, well, actually, you know, uh, this is not your, your typical, you know, Merrick Garland Federalist Society guy. But in any rate, it's, it's really absolutely ridiculous for Trump to claim that spouses are responsible for one another in this way, and to, you know, once again, as he's done with Mitch McConnell, as he's done so many other times, to attack Jack Smith on the basis of things that his wife has done that, again, are not bothersome at all, right? I mean, Trump himself you know, used to like to point out that he would give money to Republicans and Democrats and gain political influence. Um, But again, that's how he sees it, right? Everything is instrumental and transactional for him. Um, But for Donald Trump personally, who controls his spouses through NDAs and prenuptial agreements to suggest that spouses are somehow responsible for one another in this way, you know, Melania didn't make Donald Trump have brief sexual intercourse with Stormy Daniels When, you know, five months after she had given birth uh, to his child, right? She's not responsible for that. Uh, Just like Jack Smith isn't responsible for his wife making a documentary film about Michelle Obama. It doesn't mean anything. Uh, It's completely just the same kind of weak sauce stuff. But it shows a desperation, one might argue, that uh, Smith appears to be getting closer to actually doing something. Which would be nice. So, you know, you could describe it as a bit of a freak out. And again, uh, part of the reason why is, you know, he relies heavily on his lawyers and his lawyers may have been expressing uh, their opinions to him about the vulnerabilities that they may face with regard to this ongoing question. You know, they're they're getting subpoenas. Any number of them were disbarred. Um, And as we'll see, Alex Cannon for one, um, seems to be at least somewhat sensitive to the idea that you shouldn't lie too egregiously in public appeals for fundraising. Uh, He knows exactly what happened in the big ripoff after being grilled and answering questions of the committee. So part of what I think is, is interesting here is that there's a difference between Some of the testimony that we saw before and the testimony that's in the transcript and the testimony that the committee selected to include in Appendix 3. You know, the Alex Cannon, you know, yes, he cooperated to some extent in describing the things that happened with Trump, but also he's a big player whose actions and uh, perhaps intentionally, uh, you know, inactions were a big part of enabling the big ripoff. As always, Trump really thinks that the purpose of attorneys is that they do what their clients tell them to do, and maybe even take the fall for you as required. Uh, You know, Michael Cohen, right? Trump winds up not doing, you know, he's he's no problem at all. But, you know, um, or even your accountant, right? Weisselberg. You know, people take the fall for him, and that's probably Trump's expectation of these attorneys, so now that Smith is issuing subpoenas to Trump campaign staff, to Rudy Giuliani, and to different attorneys that he's hired to you know basically obstruct justice, right? That was the purpose of this. Um, I think Trump himself is panicking a bit. Not necessarily because he understands these issues at stake. Uh, he does have a kind of animal cunning. But again, because what these people might be telling him about his particular legal vulnerability, and also their own propensity to actually testify truthfully. I don't know if people are gonna be willing to go to prison for Donald Trump at this point. Maybe some people, Garrett Ziegler, for example, but perhaps not Trump's attorneys. So let's turn to Appendix Three, the big ripoff. During the hearings, the committee spent a lot more time focusing on the big lie rather than the big ripoff, which again has been relegated to Appendix 3, very end, second and last appendix of the final report. Now, again, I think this is very reasonable that they did that. Uh, it's in part due to the effort to focus the big lie, puts the, the onus squarely on Trump. The big ripoff is actually at a bit of a remove from him, although they do try to make that connection and show it. Um, and, of course, they wanted to focus everything on the effort to summon the mob and uh, the fake electors scheme and the court challenges, all of it, which were enabled by the big lie. Or perhaps it's, it's more cunning than that. Uh, maybe the committee realized that, that the cover-up always exposes targets of an investigation to more danger than the offense itself. It's a truism, right? It's not the crime. It's the cover-up. This is hinted at in the report, but what's really going on is that the funds were raised under the pretext of creating an election defense fund, and these funds ultimately wound up being spent on obstruction of justice. If you were an experienced prosecutor working on behalf of the committee and you believe that this was one of the key vulnerabilities, maybe you would hide it in Appendix 3, uh, you know, and give all your evidence to a special counsel. Uh, that you probably knew would eventually be coming along, because again, big problem with this is that this a lot of the testimony that's covered under the big ripoff, you know, is would be from people who've invoked their Fifth Amendment privileges, but also we have good testimony from many people who are directly involved who did not. Of course, it's no surprise lying to your political supporters isn't illegal. In fact, it's uh, protected political speech under the First Amendment. So, in some sense, many of the things that Trump did as part of the big lie don't raise a lot of legal issues for Trump personally, uh, with the exception of false statements, for example, that he made in court documents. But much of what he said and much of what he tweeted, aside from the actual incitement, is protected by the First Amendment. However, interestingly, These statements go to be used by advertising copywriters, uh, people who are making the email appeals to Trump supporters, and that isn't protected free speech. If you raise money for the purposes that are described uh, in the big lie, this so-called election defense fund, and then use this for other purposes, obstruction of justice by paying attorneys to represent Uh, people when the actual client is really Donald Trump himself, that's a number of other different thorny legal issues that I think are chargeable. So the big ripoff is chargeable in ways that the big lie, just independently of it, are not. You'll recall, of course, that Steve Bannon faced federal fraud and conspiracy charges from his We Build the Wall scam, although these charges, of course, were dropped after Trump pardoned him. One of uh, Bannon's co-defendants, Timothy Shea, was convicted of his federal case in the We Build the Wall scam in October and faces sentencing on January 31st. It's also noteworthy that asset forfeiture applies in this case, so some of that money could be clawed back. Now, Bannon himself will be facing similar charges in state court in New York with a trial date penciled in for November of this year. So if you lie to your donors and you claim that their donations are going to be used for one thing, but then you spend it on something else, whether it be a car, a boat, or the legal bills for your co-conspirators, that's wire fraud. And that shows up in the government's case against Bannon, which was, I think, pretty straightforward. If you tell donors you're going to spend their funds for a specific purpose, it's wire fraud if you use it for any other purpose. I'll quote from uh, the, the Bannon legal documents, quote, Bannon, through a nonprofit organization under his control, received more than $1 million from We Build the Wall. Now, remember, This is a prosecution that actually occurred in Bill Barr's Justice Department, right? So, would have occurred. Again, the charges were issued under Bill Barr's Justice Department. uh, Never actually went to trial because, again, Trump pardoned him. So, we've established it's illegal. Uh, Someone affiliated with with, uh, Bannon is facing a sentencing on January 31st for something very similar. Raising money for one thing and then spending on something else, basically establishing a slush fund. Now, I think that the the case here for wire fraud is actually easier to make than the case for seditious conspiracy, which is one of the things that is actually included in the criminal referrals. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure why this wasn't included in the criminal referrals uh, because it seems a lot more clear-cut, especially given the you know, the problems associated with winning a seditious conspiracy case. Much of the material in Appendix 3 refers to an entity created for the express purpose of defrauding donors. Uh, well, at least that's what you could infer. Um, it's the Trump Make America Great Again Committee, or T-MAGA-C which the report notes that the RNC officials pronounced T-Magic. So I'll be calling it T-Magic from now on. T-Magic was basically a joint operation operated out of the Trump campaign and the RNC itself. According to the report, quote, "...the RNC knew that President Trump's claims about winning the election were baseless and that post-election donations would not help him secure an additional term in office." Yet both the Trump campaign and the RNC decided to continue fundraising after the election, a decision that would come would have to have come from President Trump himself. So much of what's alleged in Appendix 3 comes from testimony from insiders uh, working at T-Magic. So there's a cast of characters, all of whom have associated transcripts that you can follow up with, in the footnotes of Appendix 3. So these include Tim Murtaugh, Trump Campaign Communications Director, Gary Kobe, the head of the T-Magic Digital Team, Kevin Zambrano, the RNC Chief Digital Officer, Austin Budigheimer, the RNC Deputy Digital Director, and a staff of about 20 or 30 people working under him, uh, including... Hannah Allred, the RNC chief copywriter. And there's also a lot of testimony from three copywriters who reported directly to Allred, an uh, Alex Merglin, uh, Ethan Katz, and an Alex Blinkett. So it was evident that, uh, again, to quote from the appendix, quote, it was evident that the copywriters would draft a lot of content based on what the president was saying, end quote kind of lazy on their part, um, but the witnesses claim that using Trump's words themselves had a unique appeal to his supporters, and it seemed to increase the donations. And does raise interesting legal issues, right? If Trump says something in one context that's protected free speech, but then his own campaign or T-Magic or some other entity uses that to essentially commit wire fraud, then is that still protected free speech? So where where does the onus lie? Does it lie with Trump himself, or does it lie with the people at T-Magic and the people who approved that specific language? Well, in a detail that I think we shouldn't overlook, the report notes that these fundraising appeals, these increasingly hyperventilating emails, were signed by Trump himself. Quote, The goal was to make the millions of recipients of aggressive, hyperbolic fundraising emails believe that the emails were coming from President Trump himself. In Zambrano's words, the purpose was to give recipients red meat, end quote. So you have Trump's own words, signed by Trump himself, used to raise money that was not spent on the purpose that was specified in the fundraising appeal, but rather to create a slush fund that is then used to pay for attorneys for witnesses who are subpoenaed by Congress. Now, additionally, all of these emails, because, again, precisely because of these legal issues, they had an approval process. There were gatekeepers at T-Magic who were acting to try to limit their legal liability. There was Justin Reimer, from the uh, RNC's legal department, the RNC chief counsel, Jenna Kirsch, the RNC associate counsel. At the RNC communications department, there was Cassie Doxy, who is the deputy communications director. In the RNC research department, there is one Michael Reed, deputy chief of staff for communications. And of course, there are also people uh, doing approvals on the other side of this collaboration between the RNC and the Trump campaign from the Trump campaign itself. You had Alex Cannon, the deputy general counsel for the Trump campaign. You had Trump campaign communications and research. Uh, Zach Parkinson, the deputy director of communications and director of research. All these people whose job it was supposedly to make sure that these appeals were factual to raise money for a legitimate purpose, without exposing the RNC and the Trump campaign to charges of wire fraud, for example, including attorneys, utterly failed. They were concerned with raising money rather than making sure that the fundraising appeals were not wire fraud. And by the way, to anyone who actually read any of these emails, the idea that they were approved by any attorney anywhere is really just kind of shocking because, again, They are just unhinged, right? I mean, they rely on Trump's own words. So, of course, check out at Trump email. If you haven't read a lot of these, Uh, they have a lot of source resources on the um, unhinged emails that were sent out by the Trump campaign during this time. The work from that account wound up being cited in the committee report itself five times. So, as always, Thank you for your service. Um, Right. So these increasingly bizarre rants uh, wind up raising a total of $250 million. So not surprisingly, the committee found this, quote, Members of the approvals group typically engaged only in cursory reviews of the fundraising messages and did not review substantive claims of election fraud for accuracy. So the internal processes that were supposed to uh, legitimize the claims that were made in these fundraising appeals are just completely broken. They have all these gatekeepers, but they're not doing the gatekeeping. Quote, critically, Parkinson did not review statements regarding election fraud in the fundraising copy for accuracy because most political text messages and fundraising emails are political rhetoric and a lot of them don't necessarily require fact-checking. This is a fundamental misunderstanding apparent in the report. The copywriters appear to have claimed that they have a better understanding of the fact that there are legal issues associated with false claims than the people who are actually charged with the approval of the fundraising emails do. If you read the testimony, it's the copywriters who are saying, wait, I'm not sure we can say this, and the, the approvals team is basically, eh, nah, go ahead, it's fine, we can say whatever we want, it's all protected speech. Quoting again from Appendix 3, quote, Parkinson, as head of the research team, the very campaign pain team meant to fact-check and ensure accuracy in the Trump campaign statements, said he was, quote, simply looking for messaging consistency, end quote. So, you know, whether... Democrats engaged in fraud to steal the election was a political argument to Parkinson, which he did not review for accuracy. End quote. So again, according to Zach Parkinson, these are just political statements and doesn't need, you know, we don't need to factually review them. Uh, which again, not really true if you're spending money on the things that are are baseless or you're claiming that you're going to spend it on that, and you wind up spending it on something else. During this period, it's also clear that there was some friction between T-Magic and the RNC. Quote, Allred and Katz both received direction from the RNC's lawyers shortly after the election not to say, steal the election, and instead were told to say to use, try to steal the election. Footnote 94. Allred also recalled that at some point, the RNC legal team directed the copywriters not to use the term rigged. As in many other things regarding the January 6th investigation, it appears to me, anyway, that there is once again a Team Normal and a Team Crazy, Uh, with the RNC assuming this kind of posture of Team Normal um, and the, the Trump campaign, as one might expect, assuming the posture of Team Crazy. Quoting again from the report, quote, the RNC privately and quietly softened the most blatantly egregious claims written by its own copywriters, but publicly stood shoulder to shoulder with President Trump and his big lie, End quote. So basically what the RNC did was to limit the egregiousness of the lies, but not, of course, to actually stop the lies, to change the wording a little bit so that they were perhaps a, a little less uh, exposed legally. In other words, uh, the Trump campaign and the RNC basically conspired with one another to commit wire fraud. But they were trying to do it in a smart way rather than a stupid way. So under this interpretation, you know, it's not Team Normal versus Team Crazy. It's it's Team Smart versus Team Stupid. Whoever's on what team, you have people who are talking here. Uh, you've got the people who have taken the Fifth Amendment and not cooperating. But there are plenty of people in Appendix 3 who are talking quite freely about the fact that they knew they were lying in these appeals, but also talking about, you know, different players who, uh, for one reason or another, didn't think that was problematic or sought to make minor changes to try to uh, control their legal liability, even though, again, the whole scheme is, involves raising money for one thing and then spending it on something else. They all knew that the lies were lies. Quoting again from the report, Cannon also recalled that he may have expressed concern to Matt Morgan, the campaign's general counsel, regarding the difference between claims of election fraud made in the T-Magic fundraising emails and his conclusion that there was not fraud that impacted the election results. Cannon was not aware of any actions taken to address the concerns he had with this inconsistency. End quote. And some of the inconsistencies in the emails and the, the, the facts, right? Uh sort of purported facts of the big lie, uh, were raising difficulties for people even within the T Magic digital team. Uh, at one conference, Gary Kobe, the head of the digital operation for T-Magic, asked the question: quote, How were staffers supposed to tell voters? That the Trump campaign wanted to keep counting votes in Arizona, but stop counting votes in other states, like Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Michigan, end quote. So, again, part of why this is significant is that the copywriters and the digital team did express concerns, but Cannon just kept signing off on all these lies. So, interesting in part because Cannon, um, throughout the whole uh, report, uh, is a witness that the committee relies upon. Um, but this is not inscul- exculpatory for him, right? This, is, in fact, incriminates him. Um, you know, there are a lot more blameworthy figures who are treated more generously than Alex Cannon, such as Charles Lynn Walter Piot, Ryan McCarthy, and Chris Miller. Uh, but that's, a, that's an Appendix 2 issue that I'm going to raise in a future episode. Uh, again, if I were Alex Cannon, um, you know, who appeared to comply, right, and gave useful testimony. Nonetheless, this looks very bad for him. The committee also cites evidence that there were concerns raised by Trump campaign vendors such as Iterable and Salesforce. They have testimony from an anonymous John Doe at Salesforce who claimed he, quote, noticed that the emails coming from the RNC's account included more and more violent and inflammatory rhetoric in violation of Salesforce's Master Service Agreement with the RNC, which prohibited the use of violent content. End quote. So that's the process whereby the big lie material wound up becoming the big ripoff. You get this text that was coming directly from Trump himself that is cited by copywriters. These copywriters' uh, work is supposedly reviewed by fact-checkers in research and legal who basically make minor tweaks but don't alter the, the basic idea, the, the lies that are coming from Trump uh, regarding allegations of election fraud, regarding Dominion voting machines, all that nonsense, and then winds up going out in emails purportedly from Donald Trump himself, signed by Donald Trump, addressed to uh, various donors. Um, and, you know, we've all seen them. they just absolutely comical. Nonetheless, extremely effective campaign that raises hundreds of millions of dollars. And it's at this point that the big lie becomes the big ripoff, because they ask the question, where did the money go? And again, if you said not to legal challenges uh, regarding the election, you're absolutely correct. But the other part of the answer is just as interesting, Right the money was used to provide lucrative arrangements for various Trump campaign and administration insiders who might be called as witnesses. So that, my friend, is obstruction. Um, You'll remember this from the the committee hearings, one of the few bits of evidence from this appendix to feature in the hearings. Quote, according to T-Magic fundraising pitches, the Trump campaign and the RNC team created a so-called official election defense fund to help pay for legal challenges to the election. But there was no official election defense fund. It was simply a marketing tactic, end quote. And ultimately, it winds up going to the Save America Pact, uh, which itself becomes a kind of a slush fund. We don't have adequate rules, really, regarding political fundraising. But you can't do that. They raised so much money, so quickly, they couldn't even spend it all. So what they did, quote, the Trump campaign was raising too much money to spend solely on their legal efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election. The Trump campaign continued to publicly state the election had been stolen by the left, while behind closed doors, they prepared a new plan to spend their supporters' money. End quote. So they created this Save America PAC on November 9th, 2020. And again, this basically becomes a slush fund. Now, the fact that they did this and they didn't create a fund to fund legal challenges shows that their faith in legal challenges was nil. And it's interesting, if you recall, Stuart Rose in Exhibit 10 on exactly the same date, November 9th, 2020, also expressed no confidence with legal challenges. Now, that didn't actually come up on trial, um, but, you know, it looks interesting to me. I mean, it looks like, you know, he's in direct contact with uh, Trump campaign insiders, or perhaps Kelly Sorrell was. The report also notes that uh, reporters were skeptical of the new political action committee at the time. Thank you for your service, uh, reporters. The Save America PAC has been under investigation by a grand jury since September of 2022. So Smith isn't starting from scratch. They already have information but these subpoenas appear to be pointing very specifically to the big ripoff. Again, it's already problematic, right? They lied. They got this money. But now we get to the question of outlays. And um, this is just, you know, deeply messed up. Timothy Shea was convicted for spending the money that he raised for one purpose or another purpose. And Bannon probably would have too, uh, if not for his pardon. But he still faces state charges for Committing wire fraud. And the word for this is you know, you got all these different people working together, it's conspiracy to commit wire fraud. So the committee wants to find out where the money went. And in no small measure, uh, there's a variety of, there's some self dealing here. Some of it goes to Trump himself, but it also goes to potential witnesses in the January 6th investigation, including many who have invoked the Fifth Amendment against self incrimination. So let's just go down the list of Trump insiders who ultimately wind up getting money from this slush fund, the Save America PAC, that was supposedly to be used for election defense. Quote, for example, from July 2021 to the present, Save America has been paying approximately $9,700 month, per month to Dan Scavino. Save America was also paying $20,000 a month to an entity called Hudson Digital LLC. The FEC Schedule B listing tracks back to an address belonging to Dan and Catherine Scavino, end quote. So, Dan Scavino has exposed his wife to criminal liability. But it shows how important that he is to Trump world. They're paying Dan Scavino $30,000 a month of money that was, again, raised for the purposes of election defense, but actually is being used as a slush fund, in part, to pay off people who, were, you know, (laughs) are not testifying. Other insiders who, uh, again, are receiving money that was used, uh, supposedly raised for one thing, um, were Nick Luna. Quote, Nick Luna, President Trump's former personal assistant and body man, was being paid from April 2021 to December 2021 approximately $12,000 per month by Save America for, quote, payroll. Quote, paid $20,000 per month to a limited liability corporation called Red State Partners LLC from April 21 through October 21, and Save America paid Red State Partners LLC $20,000 in February 2022. Red State Partners is an address in Miami, Florida, an address for Nick Luna and his wife, Cassidy Dumbald. So both Scavino and Luna are getting about $30,000 every month. They're, you know, getting payroll payments, supposedly, and also payments to entities that were created by them. Um, that's a, a, a good chunk of change to buy silence. Another, uh, let's go into to more people. Quote, Vince Haley, Taylor Swindle, and Ross Worthington are corporate officers of a company known as Pericles, LLC. Pericles, LLC was registered on January 27th, 2021. Um, the day after Scavino, H- Scavino's Hudson Digital, LLC, and since then has received payments from Save America totaling at least $352,700, end quote. All these people doing such valuable work that the Save America PAC is, is, is paying them, you know, very large sums of money. Quote, Another former speechwriter for President Trump, Robert Gabriel Jr., has also been receiving payments from Save America. Quote, since October 2021, Save America has paid Gabriel Strategies LLC at least $167,674, end quote. That's probably much more than uh, this Robert Gabriel earned uh, as a speechwriter. So that's pretty interesting. Another person, quote, through October 2022, Save America has paid nearly $100,000 in strategy consulting payments to Hervé Herve, uh, Pierre Braylard, a fashion designer who's been dressing Melania Trump for years, end quote. This isn't, you know, this isn't even like a copywriter, right? This is a fashion designer who's doing political strategy now. Uh, it's just, you know absolutely bizarre. It goes to show that the Save America Pact is essentially just a slush fund to reward Trump insiders. There's also the potential, of course, that there's obstruction, right? That this money is simply used as a kind of a payoff for certain individuals who had compromising information. Quote, from January 2021 to June 2022, Save America has also reported over $2.1 million in legal consulting. Many firms perform different kinds of practice, but more than 67% of those funds went to law firms that are representing witnesses involved in the Select Committee's investigation who are subpoenaed or invited to testify. End quote. So you've got payments to insiders, perhaps for their silence. You've got lawyers who are promising payments to witnesses, Uh, You'll recall Cassidy Hutchinson's testimony regarding how Stefan Pasatino encouraged her to basically commit perjury or to have memory problems when she testified before the committee. You've got all this money flying around, controlled by attorneys uh, who, again, uh, supposedly are representing the interests of their clients. But in point of fact, you know, I mean, we saw this in the Michael Cohen case, right? So... It's quite likely that people like Pasatino have some information that I think Jack Smith would be very interested in. There's also, quote, a million dollar donation to the America First Policy Institute, home to several former Trump officials and witnesses subpoenaed to testify before the committee. Quote, a million dollar donation to Conservative Partnership Institute, a conservative nonprofit organization. Where Mark Meadows is a senior partner. Quote More than $10.6 million to Event Strategies Incorporated, the preferred staging company for President Trump that staged the January 6th rally. End quote. There's also a specific, uh, really egregious example of just brazen self dealing. Quote More than $327,000 in payments to the Trump Hotel Collection and Mar-a-Lago Club since the 2020 election, end quote. So they raised money, saying it was going to be used for election defense, and they then gave it to the Save America PAC, and the Save America PAC turns it around and spends it at the Trump Hotel Collection and the Mar-a-Lago Club. There's also, quote, an event sponsorship fee of $165,937.50 to American Conservative Union, the chairman of which is Matt Schlapp. Schlapp and his wife have offered to pay the legal fees of witnesses called to testify before the January 6th committee and have extensive ties to former President Trump, end quote. And, of course, uh, Schlapp himself is involved in some problematic allegations regarding uh, groping. Another uh, interesting tidbit, quote, a little over $140,000 to National Public Affairs, LLC, a a consulting company started by former Trump campaign manager, Bill Stepien, and deputy campaign manager, Justin Clark. And this is is a, a very wide scale. I doubt that this is all. Right, um, FEC regulations provide that the purpose be described in relevant reports through a brief statement of why the disbursement was made and must be sufficiently specific to make the purpose of the disbursements clear. End quote. Now, I've not gone through all the transcripts, but again, I think this is widespread, and they're just giving money to these different people, and they're saying it's consulting or it's strategy, um. You know, I have no doubt that perhaps the legal bills are being spent on actual attorneys. Whether what the attorneys are doing is above board, I think, again, is a question that Jack Smith ought to look into. Uh, There's also another example that's not cited in Appendix 3 that I think is interesting. Um, It really sticks out to me. So you'll remember Garrett Ziegler. Garrett Ziegler was a young aide to Peter Navarro who let Sidney Powell, uh, Patrick Byrne, and Michael Flynn, and one other person into the White House on December 18th, 2020, for their secret meeting with Trump. And incidentally, of course, a a heated discussion with Trump White House staff, including uh, Pat Cipollone and Eric Hirschman. Well, Ziegler apparently now heads up a nonprofit, according to his transcript. And that's why, you know, I got this as like, that's interesting. This kid's like twenty-six years old. And he's heading up some kind of nonprofit. Okay, but enough to live on. That you know, what is was this nonprofit do? He didn't say in the transcript. But of course, even though it's not in the transcript, of course it's it is on the internet. Um, what Ziegler's operation is is a, It's a outfit that he claims uh, is a nonprofit research group exposing corruption and blackmail to drive an American renaissance. He calls it Marco Polo. Now, they've done a number of things. They've put out a report on Hunter Biden's laptop, which is just egregiously laid out. They use purple for everything. It's just visually incredibly ugly. Um, And he just, just goes around talking to people like Steve Bannon in his war room uh, about his Marco Polo uh, efforts to expose the truth of corruption uh, and, you know, uh, delve into the Hunter Biden laptop issue. So again, you have this money that was supposedly raised for election defense going to the Save America PAC. Um, Question I have is, where does Marco Polo get their money? Well, all these other groups are being funded by the Save America PAC, so it would not surprise me one bit if the Save America PAC was also giving money to Garrett Ziegler uh, for, you know, services for uh, his work at Marco Polo. They're paying the very same guy who let Team Crazy into the White House to look into Hunter Biden's laptop. Now, Ziegler lives in Illinois, but his uh, outfit, Marco Polo, is headquartered at a registered agent's office in Sheridan, Wyoming. Now, these registered agents are used for convenience and tax purposes. Um, it's not necessarily that there's, uh, you know, some kind of skullduggery involved in incorporating your operation in this way, but they are also a favorite of fraudsters and money launderers. So it's interesting that his you know, supposed nonprofit has chosen to incorporate itself uh, using a, a phony baloney sham address in Sheridan, Wyoming. Um, and he's not alone, right? According to Tax Exempt World, there are 565 nonprofits established in Sheridan, uh, which have net assets of uh, over. $570 million. Sheridan is a town of about 19,000 people um, who have an average income of about $32,000 a year. So a rather lucrative industry uh, taken as a whole, but again, not uh, the way that nonprofits are usually set up, right? You would expect this to be, you know, D.C. or, or perhaps Delaware uh, or Illinois, where Ziegler actually resides. Instead, it's in Wyoming, and it's incorporated through this process of a registered agent, uh, which is a a business that has very little oversight. So I'm not sure how much money Ziegler is, if at all, receiving from the Save America pack, but let's see what the money will buy you. Well, you go through Ziegler's transcript, and he invoked the Fifth Amendment many, many times. The first time he invoked the Fifth was when he asked Uh, how he got his first job as a policy analyst at the White House straight out of college. And to this question, his attorney, John Keanaga told him to invoke the Fifth, which is odd, right? I mean, it's just, how'd you get your job? I mean, that's incriminating? Okay, fine. Now, Ziegler was willing to say how long he had worked at the White House, 23 months, but he invoked the Fifth when they asked him what his job responsibilities were. I don't know. I mean, were his job responsibilities criminal in some way? You know, interesting question. I mean, I'm allowed to make that inference. Um, another interesting question that was asked was, "Quote, Mr. Navarro has stated publicly that he allowed several members of his staff to help out in battleground states on their own time. Did that include you?" Ziegler invoked the Fifth. Were you involved in any campaign activities? The again. The fifth. Challenges to the election? The fifth. Did he speak with Navarro regarding strategies for overturning the election? Did anyone else in his office do that? Uh, What members of his office might have done that? All these questions. The fifth. They asked specifically if Joanna Miller was involved. The fifth. Uh, I've covered this in an earlier episode, of course. Uh, Miller was basically the real author of the report that uh, the phony baloney cooked up report that uh, Navarro did on the subject of election fraud. They asked if uh, Brendan McComas was involved. Ziegler takes a fifth. Alexander Zarska. Ziegler takes the fifth. Hannah Robertson. Ziegler takes a fifth. When asked if he knows anyone named Peter Christopher Abbott, Ziegler takes a fifth when asked how many hours he worked a day on these kinds of issues between november 2020 and january of 2021 ziegler takes the fifth when asked if he knows christos macridis he takes the fifth when asked if he knows someone named riley the fifth uh, i don't know who riley is I, i'm you know i it's interesting why the committee didn't have riley's last name um you know, I, I immediately uh, think of, uh, you know, well, anyway, it, but it is interesting, right? He doesn't know anybody who's doing anything and he doesn't know um, what anybody is doing, or at least he's, he's not willing to say, right? Uh, which could lead you to believe that everything they were doing at this point in time was criminal. Go on to some, some of the more more questions they were asking. Again, It's interesting to see what questions they're asking, because this goes directly to the material in Appendix 3, regarding the big lie and the big ripoff, and who's involved. Did you have any contact with Trump campaign attorneys? Did you ever meet with Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, or Emily Newman? The fifth. Emily Newman, by the way, of course, the other person on Team Crazy, who winds up in uh, the White House that Ziegler let in. Did you ever attend any meetings at the Westin Hotel in Arlington in November of 2020? Ziegler takes the fifth. Have you ever been to the Westin in Arlington? Did you meet Sidney Powell there? Did you meet Mr. Giuliani there? Did you meet Mike Timarco there? Did you meet Phil Klein there? All these questions, Ziegler takes the fifth. So I think, yeah, yeah, he did meet all these people there. They know it, but for some reason, Ziegler thinks it's incriminating to him. Have you ever been to the Trump Hotel? Did you meet with anyone assisting the Trump campaign there? Did you meet Patrick? Patrick Byrne? Do you know Michael Flynn? Ziegler again takes the fifth. Have you ever been to a ranch in South Carolina owned by Lynn Wood? Do you know Lynn Wood? Have you ever met Steve Bannon? What is Steve Bannon's relationship with Peter Navarro? Have you ever heard the term Green Bay Sweep? Ziegler takes the fifth on all of these. Do you know of the Navarro report? Did you spend six hours a day working on it? The fifth. Um, he's, he said this publicly, right? So he said publicly that he worked for six hours a day on uh, the Navarro report, uh, presumably with Joanna Miller. There are more questions about supposed bribery in Nevada whether he traveled to Nevada to investigate these allegations, who paid for this travel, all of which they, he invokes the fifth. Do you know someone named Mark Cook? He takes the fifth. Um, Cook is an associate of uh, Mike Lindell. Do you know Phil Waldron? Did you assist him with any materials that were shared with members of Congress in December of 2021 or January of 2022? Ziegler takes the fifth. Do you know Ivan Reichlin? Do you, did you assist Mr. Reichlin with any materials that were shared with members of Congress? The fifth. Now the staff member then points Ziegler to an email from Ivan Reichlin to Ziegler's work email on this December twenty seventh at eleven twenty seven p.m. Again, this is something Ziegler would have known about, um, but you know he didn't hand it over, which is why it's part of the reason why it's significant. Reichlin asks him in the email to. Please disseminate accordingly. And there's a rare redaction in the testimony there. I, I don't know why. There's an email to Mark Meadows from Reichlin on December 23rd at 7.43 p.m. Asked about all these things, Ziegler takes the fifth. When asked if Patrick Byrne called Ziegler to ask him to let him into the White House, Ziegler takes the fifth. So, again... There are no answers. He doesn't offer any answers. Um, but you can assume, just from the questions, that they know exactly what Garrett Ziegler was up to. Um, Ziegler was at the Willard on the January 6th. He met Bannon. Of course, he met Peter Navarro, who he worked for. Um, Ziegler told his wife to leave town because of his personal concerns for the possibility of violence. And he is probably receiving money from the Save America PAC that was originally raised for the purposes of election defense. So, there are dozens of defendants who took the Fifth Amendment uh, in their testimony and in their committee depositions. And it looks like many of them are probably getting payments from the Save America PAC. So, yeah, Save America PAC is, you know, just paying the legal bills and also um, essentially supporting huge numbers of people who invoked the Fifth Amendment before the committee. So if you can, uh, it's available. um, And I I personally, I hate having to read so many electronic documents over the last year. So I'm actually happy to have a hard copy of the report. Do order it, do read it. Um, There's a lot of good material here. Some of it we've seen before. Some of it we haven't. And um, there's even more material we haven't seen before in the transcripts. That Ziegler material was all in his transcripts. And again, he was deeply involved. Just, you know, this young kid, they sent him all around the country. He's a very zealous, highly motivated, far-right ideologue. And he's currently uh, looking into Hunter Biden's laptop and living off the fat of the Save America pack. So right now we have two high-profile trials going on in D.C. uh, right next to one another. The second Oath Keepers trial and also the Proud Boys trial. Uh, Both of these trials are for seditious conspiracy. Um, Both of them are important. I would be particularly interested to see if people like, let's say, for example, Ed Vallejo wind up being found guilty of seditious conspiracy. When uh, so many, you know, five, three of the defendants of the five in the first tranche didn't get convicted of seditious conspiracy. Um, Nonetheless, the, the Proud Boys, that is looks to be an absolute circus. Many of the attorneys in that case are interesting characters. Um, Today, Carmen Hernandez, for example, decided to show up late to court claiming that she was ill and she's wearing a mask and she doesn't like to wear a mask. The judge essentially hauled her into the court and said that next time uh, he will basically call the jury in so that they can see who they are waiting for, uh, which, of course, would be prejudicial to her defendant. But, um, you know, her client, that is Apparently, that is where we are at right now. Uh, we're, we're looking at the prospect of jurors sitting there waiting on defense attorneys who are claiming to be sick. Um, you know, or and again, you've got like weird problems where um, there are legal issues and uh disbarments that are happening. Um, so it's kind of cir- circus, and it'll be we know in broad terms what the government's case is. Um, It'll be interesting to see what kind of bizarro world defenses that the uh, defendants wind up coming with. One of them, I, th- I think they're going to try to say that they were there to serve a protective purpose, similar to the Oath Keepers, right, with their PSAs, or the sorry, their uh, PSDs, personal security details. Um, yeah, and, you know, of course, spazos breaking windows with riot shields, you know, I don't know how that is uh, enhancing anyone's security In any way, Um, you know, you've got uh, Biggs who's egging people on at Peace Circle. Um, You know, I don't see how that is enhancing anyone's uh, personal security. Right. So, yeah. But that should be uh, an interesting trial. So in the meantime, uh, I'll keep reading the report. I'll keep looking in these transcripts. And um, maybe sometime soon I will have uh, more interviewed guests. So until then, thank you so much for your listenership. Thank you for your service and have a happy new year.